Digital brings you Launch Base. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. The world of tech startups reimagined. Build and elevate your idea, product, and company as we take you behind the scenes with successful entrepreneurs, investors, and tech professionals. These mentors showed me a map of success. Learn from inspiring stories, business strategies, and marketing techniques that will take your business to the next level. Are you ready? And now your host, John Radford. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Launch Base. If you don't know already, this is the podcast all about tech startups and everything digital products. If you are a startup just starting out on your journey or a corporation looking to be more agile with your product development, this is the one for you. So on today's podcast, we are delighted to have Mads Jensen, managing partner of Superseed, join us. Superseed is a fund that backs ambitious founders of B2B companies and helps them get to their first million in revenue. No small feat. Mads himself is a successful entrepreneur who has worked for two decades building and growing tech businesses. He successfully built and exited his own SaaS company, Sifera, in 2016. Mads, thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me, John. It's great to be here. Absolute pleasure, Mads. And I hope I pronounced it correctly, Sifera. Yeah, we said Sapphira, but I realized Sapphira, that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. So, Matt, you're going to do a much better job of introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your history. So, I'm going to hand that over to you to talk to us about, you know, your journey. In particular, you know, exiting a company. I think that's super relevant for our listeners, how you built that company, and then, you know, what you're doing now at Supersede, and then we'll, we'll take it from there. Terrific. Terrific, John. Thanks a lot. So once again, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's, it's great to be here and, and speak with your listeners. So my background, I've been into computers my whole life. I, mm-hmm. I got my first computer at the age of six. Right. Uh, what, was it? what was it? It was uh, a Commodore. The okay. first 64 and then of course, 64, yes. And awesome. after that, the legendary Amiga, which I think probably right. was the first real love of my life. Uh-huh. Uh, what a machine! Um, uh, so, uh, fond so, memories, fond memories. The Shanghai Rage as well, but you know, hey. Well, they, they, there you go, there you go. It's funny. I was, uh, we we're playing some uh, some old '80s pop for our, our kids this morning, and they were just looking at us like, "What, what is this ancient stuff?" <laughs> so, yes, the, the the years certainly are starting to uh, to show, but we're still going strong. Uh, winding back the clock a little bit. So, when I graduated university about twenty years ago. I came close to starting a software company, but I didn't feel quite ready at the time. Uh, entrepreneurship wasn't as big a, a thing uh, 20 years ago as it is today. Mm-hmm. And so instead, I joined IBM to learn how to manage a tech company and tech right. business. And I planned to stay for three years, but I ended up staying seven before wow. I escaped corporate life. I'd say in fairness, I learned a lot. I mean, IBM is a sales machine. And there's a particular discipline to how you run a sales organization and drive enterprise sales. And that's been very helpful for me subsequently. So in 2009, I started a SaaS company, Sapphira, as you mentioned, and uh, and then built that up over the next seven years before exiting in 2016. And it was a great and enriching journey. But, you know, as anyone who's been through it will tell you, it was also really challenging. And so following the exit in 2016, I met Dan Bowyer, who also has been a lifelong tech operator and entrepreneur. And he's built numerous tech companies and exited them along the way. And so he's just amazing at the rough and tumble that is early stage entrepreneurship. So we looked at each other and we said, you know, why don't we work together to build the fund that we wish we'd work with when we build our own companies? And that was the genesis of Superseed. 
So we, we launched in 2018, and since then we've invested in 11 companies. You know, all the companies we invest in are in B2B and, and specifically in intelligent automation. And this covers both the enterprise software and industrial automation or, or IoT side, if you will. Yeah. We're working with a group of amazing founders and their vision and tenacity just keeps impressing us. And, and so I love what I do and I love supporting them and their companies. That's awesome. And it's, uh, it's really interesting in this kind of artificial intelligence of things. It seems to be like the 2021 buzzwords, right? I'm seeing a lot of that everywhere. Is, that, is, is, is this what your, some of your portfolio companies are working on? AI is, is really, really important. I think in some ways, you know, if you don't use machine learning in some ex- to some extent, you're, you're missing a big trick. And in many ways, we're only at the start of the journey of applying that to business. There's still so much more we can automate using smart ML. Yeah, yeah. And so talk to us about what it is about kind of specifically B2B companies and, you know, AI itself that, you know, that attracts you and why it is that Superseed focuses on those as opposed to kind of a traditional, like a, a B2C startup that, you know, maybe has the potential to reach unicorn status quicker but you know there's this kind of pluses and minuses of both both sides what is it about b2b that you guys love oh totally i totally so i mean everything dan and i have done in our careers has been in b2b tech uh-huh. and and everything we invested as you said at, at supersede is b2b tech and it's yeah. a space we know really well yeah. and so we feel it's a space where we can add the most value to founders by mm-hmm. by focus here so i, I think it, how does what's different between B2B and B2C? I mean, as a, one of the key aspects of B2B and especially enterprise B2B is that it has a set of, of sort of particular playbooks for sales and distribution. Mm-hmm. So there's just a certain approach to how you need to think about positioning your company, defining your unique selling proposition, segmenting the market, identifying your ideal target customers, you know, how you prospect, how you build up sales development you know, how you do opportunity ownership and, and how you close deals. Yeah. And so they're just, there's some best practices for how this is done. And, and they're completely distinct from the work required to build a consumer company. Yeah, so sure. we know this enterprise side really well. And so we can be effective at helping founders accelerate their sales journey. Now, you know, of course, when we say sales, it's not just sales to the exclusion of all other activities. I mean, of course, the companies still need to improve their product and iterate their sales approach. But, but sales is just, I mean, it's such a North Star for an enterprise company because sales give you, it gives you real customer feedback from real users paying real money. And we think that's a great way to understand whether a business really has product market fit. And so, you know, by helping founders with sales, we feel we can help them get quicker to the product market fit and, and, and Series A. Yeah, and the the sales thing. I wanted to go back actually to the the IBM your experience at IBM because you know a lot of founders will naturally be you know really curious, highly intelligent people, you know, brilliant at what they do. But sales is not you know often not a natural thing for you know some of these really highly creative and excellent founders. So is that something that you guys help with or is that you know do do you feel like having a little bit of a sales experience is going to help a tech founder particularly in the b2b space oh without a doubt without a doubt i mean i i think uh you know someone smart said uh you know if you're if you're looking for a strong founding team it, it takes something someone to build it and someone to sell it right you know and that's at the heart, end of the day that's what a tech company does right you build tech and you sell tech there is sure. That's it. I mean, everything else is ancillary. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> so, and and actually, you talk, you mentioned their founding team, and I, I I hear this quite a bit from you know other VCs and people I talk to in the space, particularly for B two B. Do you feel that you know the solopreneur or the the single founder is, is really facing an uphill battle if they potentially you know they haven't got a if, if they're a salesperson, they haven't got a tech founder and vice versa. If they're a techie, they haven't got, you know, a, a natural born CEO leader. Is, is, do you see it as being, would you invest in a, it's a solopreneur and a single, a single founder? Yes, we, we have done that, but I would say we like well-balanced teams. Yeah. You know, we back teams with, with a founder who is strong at a domain and who has hired a CTO Mm-hmm. But when there is both a domain specialist and a technical co-founder, I think that's that's better. And it's because it's so hard to build a startup. Yes, it, it is. It takes so much stamina and perseverance. And we just think it's super healthy for companies if there's at least two, if not three founders who can help each other through all the ups and downs. You need a way. shoulder to cry on. <laughs> there, a lot, there's a lot of that. And, yeah. you know, we try, right? Sometimes it's us, but... Yeah. but you know, sometimes your your investors are just not the ideal shoulders, even if, if if we try to be. And you just need that that founder, you know, that friendly founder of co-founder who can who can be there for you, who can be your rock. So yeah. we like that a lot. Cool. And so it's specifically about Supersede. What stage are you you're at? I'm guessing because of the name, you're you're focused mainly around the seed stage, and <laughs> yeah. you know you're kind of growing that revenue. So I have a little B two B product that I've. Have I developed an MVP? What have I got when I come and see Supersede? Where am I at in my journey? You'll typically have a product that's Mm -hmm. far enough along that we can put in front of a customer to get some customer validation. So I'd say it's certainly an MVP. Now, you may not have revenue yet. That's fine. We can help you prospect and find customers. But sure. but if you have a product, that's just a lot easier. If you if if all you have is a deck and you haven't really built anything yet that's harder because you can put that deck in front of a customer and the customer might say, well, that's really interesting. Come back when you have something. When you've got something, yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and so, and, and I think the, one, of the, one of the great things that's happened in the last 10 years, it's, it's become much, much easier to build tech, to build apps, to build, uh-huh. to build software. So, uh, Well, especially if you come to an agency like Born, and, you know, it's super easy. We take all of that pain away from you, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So whether you do that in-house or whether you find great partners to work with, you can often get to an MVP, you know, quite cost-effectively. Sure. And actually, look, so many people have so many different opinions about what this elusive MVP is. And, you know, we hear it from clients who come to us and they want to build an MVP and they tell us what the product is and they then they reel out a 100-page spec document and it's it's suddenly not an MVP. They're trying to build something like, Facebook levels of complexity from day one. What does an MVP look like to you? Well, I think that's pretty pretty straightforward. I, you've got a customer that you understand really well, yeah, and and therefore you know exactly the problem you're trying to solve, and the software solves that one problem. But it does it yeah. well enough that the customer says, "Yeah, I'm, I want to use that. I probably want to pay you some money for it." Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No. I, I, yeah. I, I like the simplicity of the response there because it's it's trying to what the, the struggles that we find is trying to dive down into tell me about this one problem first and then we'll try and solve that and then we'll worry about what all of the other bells and whistles that go around the product are. 
Exactly. Okay, cool. So let's 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 move on to like what kind of credentials that you specifically look for in entrepreneurs. You know, is track record important? Do you know age necessarily isn't isn't particularly relevant, but kind of you mentioned your sales experience at IBM. Uh, am I somebody who's worked in corporate who understands kind of some processes and things like that, or is there a kind of a blanket for success here, or is it does it vary? No, I mean it's a terrific, terrific question, and of course that's what we spend you know each and every day trying to work out is is the team in front of us. You know, do we think they're gonna succeed with the endeavor yeah. they're taking on. And, and, and can, we, can we help them get there faster? I'd say two things are particularly important to us. So first of all, founders need to have enough customer insight to really understand the problems and challenges faced by the customers they're making a product for. Right. So maybe they've been the customer. Okay. Maybe they've sold to them before. But there has to be some background that gives them some, you know, some key insight into the day-to-day lives of the customers they're targeting. Sure. And this is just super important because the, the machinations of professionals and corporates, it can be so opaque to outsiders. So we might think that we know someone's job, what it's like at a high level, but unless you know it really well, you won't really know what to build. Yeah. And so having that customer knowledge and that customer empathy is just super important. Sure. And the second thing I think that's really important is sufficient technical skill to build a strong product. So the product may not be fully formed, but if there's strong technical foundation, then we know the, the founders can pivot and iterate as they learn. So this is also super important because, you know, you start out with an MVP, but you never have the, the finished thing off the bat. Yeah. So having those two components in a team we think is super helpful. A track record, on the other hand, it's much less important. We love working with first-time founders. If they're passionate about solving a big problem and if they have strong customer insights, then, then we think they're probably, they probably have the key ingredients. Yeah, and you've mentioned customer insights a few times now, and that's, that's a point that's really interested me. Can you advise people on how to, I mean, so I'm, I'm a product guy, for instance, I've worked four years, you know, client side, and I've figured out a problem because I'm working inside it. Is that customer insight or can I do this through my own research as a kind of founder? What, what defines great customer insight and how do I, how do I get there? Um, it's, it's probably insight that isn't immediately visible and apparent to, to the outside world. Mm-hmm. So... You know, Peter Thiel, he, in, in, in his works, he's, he talks a lot about secrets. Right. So things that aren't generally, generally known and generally accepted. Sure. And so, so if you have an insight, you can gain insights in many different ways. But you, if you have an insight that's not immediately visible to others, that means you have a chance to then use that insight to create a product that others can't readily create because they don't have that insight. Yeah. So you know, obviously, as soon as you launch and you're in the world and you get some success, Others might try and copy you, but then you have a head start. Yeah. But having the insight to give you that head start, that's really important. What can happen otherwise is you have an idea, you have a notion that well, wouldn't it be helpful if we did so-and-so and you start off on that road, but it's not quite right. And you may have to do a lot of iteration. And so, yes, if you iterate in the market for five years, eventually you might get there. That's a very expensive way to build a company. Sure, um, sure. So you're much better off having that insight to start with, even if you yeah. end up iterating, refining along the way. It's really interesting because a, a lot of the successful founders that I know have come, they tend to kind of 
work their their product is a spin-off of the industry that they've been working in previously and it's kind of that intrinsic knowledge of of the industry so it's not I haven't been working in the music business and then decide to go and launch a banking app you know it's that that kind of stuff I think is very rare but correct me if I'm wrong well you'll you'll be surprised at how many people try that yeah but and, how many and, are successful well e bingo so 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 that's it so that's that's certainly one of the things we 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 look at and look for is that, that customer insight yeah cool so there is quite a heavy kind of there's a heavy weighting of ai in your in your portfolio this is intentional i'm guessing this you know ai automation this kind of stuff interests you guys can you kind of expand on that what it is it about you know how ai is kind of transforming businesses in 2021 and what does the future look like moving forward for you, for you guys? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so AI and machine learning is changing everything. And mm-hmm. we think we've only just begun seeing the impact of how machine learning can be used to automate business. Yeah. To give an example, some of the world's most sophisticated manufacturing organizations like Intel and Samsung, they make lots of use of machine learning in their production plants. But for the long tail of manufacturers, this is, Far from the case. By some measures, more than 80% of the world's manufacturing machines are still not connected. Yeah. So when machines are not connected, there's no real-time data. And when yeah. there's no data, there's no intelligent automation. So mm-hmm. with, with IoT, we can change all of that, and then we can use machine learning to, to automate those, those processes. So there's so many ways that we're excited about the way we can change and improve the way we make things. And this has, you know, all kinds of, of knock-on effects, you know, not least from a sustainability perspective. If we have sure. more efficient manufacturing, we have less waste and it's more sustainable. So lots of positives. Yeah. And a bot's going to take over the world or are humans safe for the time being? Well, that's a phenomenal question. And that possibly beyond, beyond our uh, kind of our, our uh, ability to divine. I, I, think, I think if we make, you know, I, I think we're safe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we have a good future, I think that is down to some important political choices we need to make. Yeah. We said some of these, um, this is much less about technology and much more about politics and economics. And mm. we have all the tech today, we need to solve a wide range of problems. We can solve climate change if we choose to do that, but it requires some political decisions. Sure. We can, you know, we can, we can create a, you know, an equitable and, and, and well-functioning society, I think, that is, that is a world of plenty. But again, it's, we need to make some political choices to do that. I don't think tech can't solve all of this on its own, but it can certainly, it can create the foundation for, you know, the wealth and the, for us to have the resources we need to, to then go and solve some of these other problems. But it's, there's a requirement for a political solution as well. Tech can't yeah, do it. Yes, there is. I think that's a whole different topic in itself. And so you're, you talked about kind of AI and tech transforming problems and transforming industries. Is there a couple of industries that you think are kind of ripe for that transformation and ones that potentially are behind the curve and that, you know, AI, big data, IoT can kind of transform those industries? Yeah, I mean, we mentioned manufacturing already, yeah. which I think yeah. is an obvious one. Uh, you know, it's, this is the way we make things in the world. There are some other industries which are stubbornly resistant to technology, mm. like construction. Yeah. Uh, you use a lot more construction now than you used to, but if you think about construction, it's still a very manual process. If you think about the way data is produced, reproduced, reproduced, and reproduced, and all the abortive work that happens, there is 
vast scope for for improving how that's done as well. So, you know, construction and, and manufacturing, I'd say, with two of the world's largest industries, are are definitely good candidates. Yeah, and so moving it more on the kind of the human centric side, and and like we touched upon, you know, bots taking over the world and everything, which they're not for now, so that's fine. But let, let's talk about smart cities and their citizens and crime and safety. There's a, there's a great app product in in the states called Citizen. I'm sure you know it, but it's kind of they it works on sort of feeding off the police data feed and then uses a bit of data from that it gathers from kind of its users as well to sort of plot where crimes are happening and almost predict the crime hotspots and stuff like that. We don't have the luxury of being able to get a police data feed in the UK just yet. But, you know, do you feel like, you know, how is kind of AI and big data transforming smart cities of the future and, you know, hopefully making places more safe? Or is it? It's a super controversial area. Yeah. Exciting and controversial. I mean, I, 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 I've, I've lived in London for, you know, almost 20 years. I mean, I clearly remember the July 7th bombings in 2005. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and more recently, the, the Manchester Arena bombings in, in 2017. Yeah, and, and it just, I mean, these were such horrific, horrific acts of, of, of terror and violence. And it seems obvious that if we could have prevented those by using better technology, then we should have. Hmm. Now, but at the same time, there's a lot of valid concern around privacy. Because privacy, human rights, yeah. We used to gather and process, you know, lots of data to catch terrorists can also be used to suppress citizens. Yeah. So, and this is usually the case with technology. It's not really the tech as such that's good or bad, but it's it's how you use it. I mean, this is this is back to to sort of the the, the your question from before about kind of will robots take over the world? And and there's there's a little bit of that here as well. Again, this is about machine learning and AI, and it is so powerful. We got to use it in the right way. So to your question around how, you know, will this shape law enforcement? I think it is inevitable that it will yeah. do so and to a very large degree. Yeah. And because this is likely to happen, it is so important that we have a thorough public debate about it. So we don't yeah. sleepwalk into a world we don't want to be in. Yeah, and, and we don't want to get too political, but, you know, do politicians need to kind of up their game in the tech space, do you think? You know, because it feels to me like, some governments are are a little bit kind of not afraid of tech, but they sort of, when it comes to these sort of things, this AI and, and everything, they kind of not not necessarily turn a blind eye to it, but push it to one side slightly rather than embracing it and kind of like you say, using it to form decisions based on those kind of things. I I mean, John, are you suggesting that politicians, rather than taking on the key issues they should be focusing on, are busy <laughs> pandering to? populist tendencies and basically wasting their time on stuff that's not going to create any solutions. No, I wouldn't dare suggest that. <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't have thought so. I mean, look, we're entering dangerous territory, of course, but I, I, I think if you're suggesting that politicians could do better at focusing on the things that really matter, I think the answer is yes, I yeah. think so. <laughs> Um, we've gone enough for the tangent, but you know, I, st- I I still think it's relevant and you know, super super interesting, and you know, because it, it's everywhere, isn't it? And it's going to shape our world moving forward. So you know, we all need to get on board and embrace it. Talking about moving forward, the, the, how does your pipeline look for twenty twenty one? Is there any kind of portfolio companies you want to talk to us and get us excited about? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we've got a terrific pipeline. We're working with half a dozen companies right now that I'd love to invest in. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and the quality of the founding teams is just very, very high. Um, right. In terms of investments, we, we recently announced our investment in AI Build. Uh, they make software for 3D printing. And right. that's a super exciting industry. Sure. So I mean, the ability to print whole objects is just, it's magic, right? It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so far, this technology has been used mainly for smaller objects like hearing aids and dental implants. But AI Build, they've created technology that makes it possible to, uh, even straightforward to print very large objects. So okay. they're working with several automotive and Formula One manufacturers, and, and they've recently begun a partnership with Boeing and Rolls-Royce. So we're very excited about this company. Great, great. That's huge. That's huge. And so any kind of parting comments or advice that you would give to people launching a B2B, you know, approaching seed stage investment and growing a company? Um, I, entrepreneurship isn't for everyone. Uh, mm-hmm. It's super hard. It's super arduous. But if you have passion and fire in your belly and key customer insight that is differentiated, would say go for it because it is, I, I can't think of a journey that's more thrilling and rewarding than, than working on solving a problem that you're passionate about and kind of building a team and, and just focusing all your energies on, on that one thing. And so I'm, I'm thrilled about what's happening in the entrepreneurial ecosystem and, and, and you're so excited to meet all the founders, the great founders we meet. So you know, thanks to everything you do. I mean, without you, there would be no innovation and, and we would all be standing still. So um, um, yeah, we're, we're very, very thankful for, the, for, for all the founders that are making it possible. That's awesome. Passion, drive, resilience, commitment. I love it. Mads, it's been really interesting talking to you. Hopefully I didn't get too political for you. I've really enjoyed the chat and it's, it's been really insightful. I, I think we'd love to have you back as well to talk a little bit more about AI as, as things move forward, because I think we could just go into a, a lot more depth on that. You, you've clearly got tons to say. But for now, thank you very much for your time. It's, it's been excellent. Uh, it's been a pleasure, John. Thanks a lot for having me. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of LaunchBase, brought to you by Born Digital. Mission complete. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a comment. For more info and to stay connected off the show, visit launchbase.fm.